Good evening. Uh, just two brief reminders before we begin. Um, after the worship service this evening, uh, there will be a gathering to um, assemble Samaritan's Purse shoeboxes in the um, fellowship area. We invite you to join us for that. Also, if you ordered Girls of Grace pies, those can be picked up later in the kitchen. But right now, the Lord calls us to worship. He does so with these words from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. If all the world is called to rejoice and to praise the Lord as his creation, how much more we who are the subjects of his recreation in Christ. Therefore, let us join our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer, asking him to bless the time that we spend in worship this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can end this day as we have begun, by seeking you in a time of worship. We pray that all that is done here might bring honor and glory to you, and that you, by your Spirit and through your Word, might speak to us and work in our hearts to draw us closer and closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Amen. Let us stand together. <clears throat> Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 28 in our Psalter hymnal. 28 stands as one two, three, and five.
We confess our faith together this evening using the words of the Nicene Creed, which you can find on page 4 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. A confession that reminds us that we are united with the church in every place and throughout the ages in what we believe, in what God has revealed to us concerning himself. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in one Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is a psalm of David. The superscription, the the heading over it says, When he was in the cave. We don't know whether what what precise time that he was in the cave, but it's clear that he was hiding, likely from Saul. And this prayer, this prayer describes a time when he was alone. It's hard to be in a tough place, in a difficult place where your enemies are surrounding you in the best of circumstances. But, but when you're alone, he says, at one point, I look to my right hand and there is no one. At your right hand is the place where your most trusted advisor and helper is normally to be found. And yet even there, there's no one. He is utterly alone. But he turns to the Lord And not only pleads for help, but expresses the expectation that that help will be found. 
and that he will be able to praise the Lord in the aftermath. That's the kind of confidence that God calls his people to pray. Expecting a help from God that at the moment we pray, we can't see. We can't understand where it would come from or how it would look. And we can pray with that kind of confidence because this is Christ's prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, recognizing that he was essentially alone, that the men who were to be joining him in prayer were sleeping, and very soon the enemy would surround him and they would flee, and he would be left alone. But his father would not forsake him. And even though it must be according to God's purposes that the father would forsake him for a time on the cross, yet he would restore He would raise him even from the dead. And Jesus would praise him and would bring him glory ever after. Because this is Christ's prayer, which was answered and fulfilled, therefore it can be our prayer. And we need never feel alone or lost or hopeless. David writes, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice... I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion In the land of the living, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Amen. Let's sing that prayer together from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, Psalm 142. We'll sing all the stanzas.
As we come to the Lord in prayer, um, just a reminder from our announcement bulletin, uh, the prayer for the, the church plant work in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, the work of Reverend Rifle. Um, this is yet a, a small work. There's, they have two elders, one deacon, uh, just a couple dozen in attendance, uh, but they're there, and they're eager. And, uh, and that's a blessing. So uh, we should keep them in prayer and pray that, that God would continue to raise up such works to proclaim his truth in places where it's not being clearly proclaimed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening as those who increasingly know that we are strangers in the land because the leaders and the influencers in our culture reject all that your word proclaims, reject the sovereign king of heaven and earth and insist that everyone else affirm and celebrate the rebellions they embrace. Father, we see that. Huh. We see that in Ohio, our neighboring state, which has foolishly and rebelliously followed us in Michigan in enshrining in their state constitution the wicked right for a mother to kill her baby up to the day of birth. Father, we confess that this is what we see of the worldview driving our land, and therefore we know, therefore we know that we live on the mission field that we live in a land that is desperately in need of your word of truth, which reveals the emptiness and the darkness and the misery that come with sin, which call men to the humility of confessing their sin and acknowledging that only you can provide the help that we need. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of many in our land to show them that where they are and what they've been embracing is not okay. To show them that they are not sufficient and that their ungodly worldviews are not a comfort and that they need something better, something brighter, something true. And Father, we pray that you would work in your church here at Grace and in every place throughout this land where your people gather that we might be firmly rooted in your truth, confident and understanding in the gospel, striving to live a life that reveals the fruit of living faith. And Lord, we pray that you would make us bold and would fill us with such a love for you and such a love for our neighbor that we would be willing to speak no matter the consequence. To tell them that there is a God who will judge all that men do. That there is a truth that cannot be twisted or denied. But also that there is salvation. That we cannot earn. 
but that we can obtain through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Father, we pray that You would fill us with an urgency for the people of our land. As we see the slide grow faster, the hill grow steeper, the depths into which our countrymen are plunging ever darker in our sight. Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up and spread your church. Grant that we might not be satisfied simply to go about our business blending in as for far too many years, far too many of us have been willing to do. Acting as though we were just like all those around us when in fact we are diametrically opposed at the very heart and core of who we are. Nor let us be satisfied to know that many of our neighbors are living in open rebellion against you, unchallenged, uncalled. Father, you have put us in, our, in their midst. Give us then the courage and the confidence in your power and your purpose to use even those who are weak and scorned as we are, to bring the glorious message of truth. Father, we thank you for that fledgling little work in Indianapolis and for the labors of Brother Rifle and his elders and deacon. We pray, Father, that you would bless them, that you would give spiritual maturity to those whom you've gathered there, that you would give them opportunity to speak to others and to draw them in by your Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you would cause your word to go forth with power there. That those who gather might hear and understand the truth of your gospel that saves and the truth of your word that transforms the hearts and lives of all who belong to you in every aspect of life. Lord, we pray for our seminaries. So many of them, so many of the seminaries of this land have, have gone astray from the truth, have sought to accommodate the unbelieving philosophies of our world, and we grieve that. And others of those that have been faithful, they, they seek to dull the sharp edge of your word by saying it's only about spiritual matters. It's only about the salvation of souls and it's not about the transformation of life, about the transformation of culture, about the lordship of Christ in all of life. But we know it is. And so, Father, we pray that you would give a boldness to the professors and a boldness to the ministers and a boldness to all of the leaders of your church to proclaim the truth that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That you save your people with no contribution of ours whatsoever, but those who are saved, you demand everything of them. You demand their complete submission, their complete trust in you. Father, this is good news. Because we know what a mess we make of life when we trust our own wisdom and our own might. And we know the blessing that comes from following you. As the psalmist pointed out how none 
is beside him. There is no one to help him and there are traps in his path. So do we find when we walk in this world alone without looking to you. But when we look to you, we know that you are at our right hand and at our left. And that even if a thousand attack us on one side and ten thousand on another, you are greater. You will provide, you will protect, you will preserve us evermore. Lord, make this to be the message of your church so that your people, when they are beset, whether by an unbelieving world or by the grief of loss or by the the power and the persuasiveness of sin or by disease and the threat of death, might remember that the one who is with us is infinitely greater than all of those who stand against us. And enable us to minister to one another, Lord. Again, not just here at Grace, but everywhere where your people gather. Enable them to stand up and remind each other of the blessing that we have, of the promises that you've spoken, of the certainty of your goodness and your grace. And having thus strengthened and encouraged them, send them forth, Lord. Send us forth. To proclaim your truth with great conviction and power. To that end, we pray your blessing upon our elders, our deacons, and our minister as they gather this week for consistory and for counsel. We pray that you would make their meetings to be helpful and productive. And we pray, Father, that you would use their labors to bless your church, to equip the saints. And to empower your people to rise up and to minister to one another and to the world with which you've surrounded us. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to minister in our own homes. To our children and our grandchildren. To our cousins and uncles and aunts. Even to our parents. Bringing to each one a reminder of your goodness and your grace and your power. Father, so work within your people that our very lives become a testimony to the transformative power of your gospel and speed the day when Christ returns, gathering before himself all who have ever lived That the faith of those who are His might be revealed and that His justice might be revealed against those who are your enemies. And that all things might be made new. Until that day, Lord, sustain, strengthen, and bless each one who looks to you. And Father, we pray all of this with thanksgiving that you hear us, that you love us, and that you will provide. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to look together to God's Word, um, we're going to stand and sing once more. We're going to sing a rendering of Psalm 25, which we find in Selection 45 from our Psalter hymnal. We'll sing stanza 1 and then the even stanzas. 1, 2, 4, 6, 8.
Well, this evening we start, as we did this morning, we start a new series. Um, This evening we're going to start looking at the truth of God's Word as it is summarized and arranged in our Canons of Dort. Um, Like our Heidelberg Catechism, Canons of Dort, that's canons with just two ends, not three. Um, That means the the rule or the uh, order of Dort. And that's a summary of what the Bible teaches, not about everything, but specifically, and we'll talk a bit more about this in a minute, specifically about God's sovereignty in salvation. In other words, this isn't, this, this document doesn't talk about everything we ought to believe concerning God, but it focuses on God's role and man's role in salvation. Now, of course, we're not um, bound to the words of men. We're bound to the word of God. And so the canons are useful for us only if they're an accurate summary of God's word. And so that's our task is to look at God's word. This is what the church confesses. Is that really what God's word says? I propose to you that it is and that in that it is a great, in fact, an immense comfort to us. But before we look at the first bit of the Canons of Dort, I'd like to read with you from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, two particular instances in the earthly ministry of Jesus, starting at verse 17 of chapter 5. On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things this day. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Amen. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Now, looking at a summary of God's Word in the Canons of Dort, I'd like to read with you the first two articles. You can find this on page 259 in your Forms and Prayers book if you'd like to read along. Article 1 says, Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been His will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse, and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the Apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Article 2, but this is how God showed His love. He sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Beloved servants of God in Christ, as I said this evening, we turn our eyes to the canons of Dort. Now, I will admit up front that we will see as we go through the canons that they are not as beautiful in form or as pastoral in speech as our Heidelberg Catechism, nor is their language as majestic as our Belgic Confession. The beauty and the majesty of this confession of the church lies not in its form, but in the content of truth that it confesses. But we should begin by recalling where this comes from. Our confession, called the Canons of Dort, was written in 1618 and 19 at the National Synod of Dordrecht in South Holland, the Netherlands. It's about a hundred years after the Reformation began. There was a group that had arisen and kind of coalesced around a professor and preacher named James Arminius. Arminius was known and appreciated deeply as a compelling speaker and teacher. However, as compelling as was his speech and his manner, what he taught was filled with errors. Now, Arminius died in 1609. But his teachings didn't die. His students carried them on and even carried them beyond where Arminius went. And in 1610, they presented to the churches what was called the five remonstrances. Now, a remonstrance is a complaint or a protest calling for change. Their remonstrance had five points to it. Those points, to put it very briefly, indicated that God and man cooperate in salvation. The first point was that election, God's decision about whom to save, was based on God foreseeing who would respond to the gospel in faith. So election was based on what men would do. The second was that Jesus died on the cross to make it possible for all men to be saved. All men. The third was that God's work of regeneration or working in the heart is insufficient. Men must add to it their own decision and their own work. That was followed by the claim that God's grace is resistible. 
Although the Holy Spirit sweetly draws men, he can't pull them without their own will, without their own decision backing it up. And then finally, they claimed that those who turn to Christ truly, savingly, can later on turn away. These teachings were at variance with what the churches had been teaching, by and large, since the time of the Reformation. And so finally, there was so much division, there was so much strife within the churches, that a synod was called at Dordrecht. And the delegates there, from all over the Netherlands and beyond, really from all representatives from from all of the nations that embraced Protestantism, gathered and they studied, they discussed, they debated to determine what it was that God's Word taught with regard to these things. The result is what we find in the canons of Dort. If you distill it down to the core, the message of this confession is really quite simple. It is that God is completely sovereign, completely in charge in our salvation. There is nothing over which he does not exercise complete control. His will encompasses all that comes to pass, including the salvation of each and every saint. Now that's not to say that the canons deny the the fact that men have a will by which they act. In fact, it affirms that men have a will. But it also affirms the depth and the breadth of the corruption that sin has wrought upon us. And as a result, they show, this confession shows that apart from the powerful, almighty work of God, not a single person would turn to Christ and be saved. That is really the heart of the message of the canons. It's a message that says that we are entirely dependent on God for our salvation. However, it is also a message that God's grace is abundant beyond our imagination. And that message begins in what we just read. With two articles that reveal the distinction between on the one hand God's justice and on the other hand God's grace. What we see there is that our loving God provides what sinful men never, ever, ever could merit. Our loving God provides what sinful men never could merit. That's our theme. And we begin looking at that theme by considering the bad news, which is the curse that our sins deserve. The truth of God's word summarized in Article 1. Now, you noticed, I, I assume, when we read that, how packed that article is with the, law, or with the words of law and justice, right? Sin, sentence, curse, justice, condemnation. These words are, are used... When we talk about a courtroom, when we talk about a jury box, because you see a crime has been committed and the crime in question is Adam's sin which has been followed by all of our sins. We heard this morning about the first sin, didn't we? God created Adam both good and free. That is to say there was no sin in him, there was no defect, there was no flaw, there was no failure, and at the same time, he had the perfect ability to understand what God said and to choose either to do it or to reject it, right? Adam was free in a way that is absolutely without bounds, and God's commands toward him were good. He called Adam, along with his wife, to fill the earth and subdue it, to work the ground and make it bring forth from the 
from the potential that filled it. He called him to take this world that was filled with so much potential and make it even greater, glorifying God and revealing his image throughout it. There was only one negative command. Do not eat the fruit of that one tree in the middle of the garden, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And really the the thing that made that tree special was the fact that God commanded not to eat the fruit of it. It was a test commandment, a probationary commandment. Will you trust me? Will you use this incredible freedom, these incredible opportunities to believe and to serve me, says God. Now implied in that one command was both a blessing and a curse. If Adam obeyed God, if he trusted God, if he did what God said, then he would continue to live and serve God Presumably forever. He and his children after him would continue to walk with God, to talk with God, to enjoy communion with God, and to serve God throughout the world in all of their endeavors. But if he didn't, well, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And implied in death is not just the cessation of a heartbeat or brain waves, it's the breaking of the relationship between God and man. He would not know eternal life. He would not continue to know the grace and the goodness and the blessing of God. So Adam was faced with a choice right at the very beginning. Blessing or curse. Trust. Distrust. Obedience. Rebellion. That was Adam's choice and he was fully capable of making that choice. And of course we know what choice he made. Led astray by his wife at the instigation of the devil, Adam chose to rebel. It was a tiny act, really. One bite. A little snack. But implied in that little snack was a distrust of God and a rebellion born of the heart. Hear this, hear this. The canons stand on the belief and we must stand on the belief. That was a real event. Adam was a real man. He was truly the first of mankind. He wasn't one in a long line of evolutionary beings. That's baloney. That's the claims of unbelievers who want an opportunity to deny Scripture. Adam truly existed. He was the first man. This sin truly happened the way that it is said in Scripture. It was a real historical event. Just as real, just as historical, and just as tragic as the sinking of the Titanic, as the meltdown of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, as the early morning murderous attack by Hamas on Israel. Adam was real, his sin was real, and so was the curse that flowed from that sin. You notice that I used events to compare it with that are considered tragedies. Because Adam's sin was a tragedy. It was the tragedy of humanity. The breadth of the effect of Adam's sin is stunning to consider. New Testament texts like Hebrews, not Hebrews, Romans 5, remind us that Adam was the man. He was the first man, which meant whatever he did would have an effect on our character and ability. He was the head. He was acting on our behalf so that his decisions would have an effect on our eternal well-being. He was the one man whose choices would affect our fate forever after. And so what Adam did would bring consequences for all of us. Consider just some of the lesser consequences 
in how Adam's sin corrupted our nature and our world. Before Adam sinned, nature and mankind lived in sweet harmony. Man was made to exercise dominion over all the world. He was to rule and to form and to guide it all. Using all of his gifts, calling on his wife and later his children to use their gifts to bring forth from the creation that which would would really reveal the creativity and the power and the goodness and the glory of God. But then Adam sinned. And this world and its work, which could have been such joy, became a curse. The ground began to bring forth thorns. The soil became hard. Work became toil. Conflict came, corrupting the unity. Suddenly, man was at odds with God, and a man was at odds with his wife, and parents would be at odds with their children. Sickness and disease, illness and injury would become part and parcel of our existence. The paralysis of the man in Luke 5. The strife between tax collectors and Pharisees. Those are all the overflow of what Adam chose to do in that rebellion. But the worst of the corruption was that which was rooted in mankind's heart. In John 3, Jesus said that with his coming, God sent light into the world. That light was the righteousness and the holiness, the purity and the perfection that he showed forth in his very character, in his very being. Jesus came as what every man was meant to be, the perfect servant of God who never disobeyed, who never never failed. But, John 3, verse 19, he says, People loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. They saw Jesus. And in Jesus they saw, kids get this, in Jesus they saw what man was meant to be. They saw a man who never sinned, never did what God said not to do. Never failed to use his gifts to the fullest. And they hated him. They longed to get rid of him. Because they knew that was what they were supposed to be doing. That corruption, that impurity of the heart, it infects every single one of the offspring of Adam. We were made in Adam's corrupted image. We learn the truth of fallen man from Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That speaks of us, brothers and sisters. Every one of us. If you doubt the corruption that Adam's sin earned for us, open your eyes and look. I mentioned it in our prayer just last week. Our neighboring state of Ohio joined us in the absolute wickedness of making it not just legal, but constitutionally protected to kill babies up to the moment of birth. That is a hard-heartedness and a wickedness that is hard for us to even fathom. And that happened in our country. Matter of fact, it's happened in our state. School teachers and administrators throughout this land, without their parents' knowledge, can can teach little children that gender is just an idea, a feeling that can be changed if you want to. 
And that's just right now in our land. In our age, in our nation, wickedness runs absolutely amok. Go spend a little bit of time with those who daily face it in its worst forms. Talk to a law enforcement officer about the absolute cruelty of men against men or men against their wives. Talk to a counselor of delinquent youth about how early they embrace the worst forms of wickedness. Talk to an ER nurse who sees how folks daily, sees how folks destroy themselves with their sin. And then, my friends, look in the mirror and think on the lies that you yourself have told to the people closest to you and realize how often you've betrayed the trust of your parents and your friends and gaze at the ugliness of the thoughts that arise in your heart and in your mind. Adam's sin has corrupted every last one of us in the very deepest parts of our being. And yet that wasn't the worst of the consequences of Adam's sin. The worst of the curse was the guilt with which he burdened us. Romans 5 verse 12. Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death was the just punishment of what Adam did. That was God's warning at the start. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is the requirement of justice for rebellion against sin. And because Adam was our representative before God, therefore his choice to sin resulted in our death. And so we read in in Romans 5, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Uh, Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Every one of us was born dead, that is, born separated from God. And we go through life in a cursed and fallen world, awaiting the final judgment for all the wicked things, all the rebellious things, all the hateful things that we've done and said and thought, and all the good things that we've refused to do. Why is it that people are so absolutely insistent that there's no purpose, there's no goal, there's nothing after death, and we're all just the... Result of a cosmic, immense scale accident of evolution. It's because the alternative is unthinkable to the unbeliever. The alternative is that a true living God created us for His purposes and we'll have to answer for refusing. We are guilty criminals, incarcerated and awaiting our eventual judgment. Think on that. When you have somebody who has committed a crime, when they're captured, what happens to them? They're not just booked and set free, usually, if it's a serious crime. No, they're put in jail under the presumption that it's not wise to let them go until we've had a jury sit and hear this case. And then when they're found guilty, they are turned over either to the prison where they will serve out their sentence or to the executioner, where they will end their time on this earth. For the ungodly, in fact, for all who remain in Adam, they're in jail. They're in the holding cell. They're awaiting. They are beginning to suffer. You know, jail's not a pleasant place. You don't have freedom. You don't have all the enjoyments of life. You're cut off from the things that you delight in and the people in whom you delight. But it's not prison. It's bad, but prison's much worse. 
For the unbeliever, this world is jail. Oh, it has some benefits. But it's not what it should be. It's not what it could be. It's not what it was designed to be. And what awaits? Infinitely worse. Because what awaits is the full weight of God's wrath spread out through eternity. Now, folks, listen, our God is righteous and just and good. There is not one person who can justly find fault with him. Everything he has revealed about us demands the verdict guilty. And that means that God would have been entirely just to destroy each and every person at the very start, to end mankind with Adam and Eve. But he didn't. And then along came Cain and Abel. And Cain followed Adam's corruption, killing his brother. And God would have been just to end it right there. But he didn't. Because he had made made a promise that we saw this morning. There would be a seed, an offspring of the woman. And he would crush the serpent's head. He himself would be struck. He would suffer deeply. But he would bring defeat from the evil one and he would bring victory. They would be covered with his righteousness and holiness just as Adam and Eve's nakedness was covered with the skins that God gave to them. Though they deserve, though we deserve the curse, that's not necessarily what we will receive because God is not only justice, God is also mercy. God is not only justice, God is also grace. And in His grace, God was unwilling to allow Adam's sin to stand as the final word. And that's the other thing we see here. We're going to just touch on it because we're going to explore it at great length later. But we have to touch on it. Jesus said in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not only perish, but have it, or should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's our second point. The grace that our Savior reveals. God showed his perfect love by sending his perfect son. Just as Adam was the first man, having the absolute ability to to obey God or to reject him, being perfectly suited to represent all of mankind, so Jesus came as the last man having the complete ability to do what was right or what was wrong, having the ability to represent all whom God entrusted to him, which was the new humanity. As the last man, Jesus had to do all that Adam was obligated to do and more, which is to say he was obligated to obey God's every command, positively. To reject everything God forbade, negatively. And on top of that, to suffer the penalty for Adam's sin and all of the sins that subsequently have been done by God's people. Immense was the task before him. But that was the only way that justice could be lifted from us. That was the only way that God could show forgiveness to us. Now that leaves quite a few questions unanswered. We know that Jesus did what we never could do, replacing our curse with His grace. But we haven't touched on the questions of whose salvation Jesus came to obtain, or of how God determined 
whom Jesus would save, or of how the grace of Jesus must be received, or of how God would use Jesus' work to reveal God's mercy. And even those questions are but the tip of an immense iceberg. What does the grace of Christ mean for those he saves? And what does it mean for those who refuse him? What is our calling as those who receive his grace? And how shall we spread the blessing we've received? Those questions are essential for us to consider. And Lord willing, we will as we consider God's truth as it's summarized in this confession. But at the start, our canons don't get into all those weeds. At the start, our forefathers saw wisdom in telling us to pause and simply to marvel at the immensity of the grace that God has shown us. God could not ignore the curse that our sins deserve without compromising his character. He had to ensure that the debt was paid in full. He had to ensure that the justice owed was bestowed. God's justice had to be poured out absolutely in full, either on us or on our substitute. And so great is his love for us that he himself came to be that substitute. Grace is not, cannot be free. It's free for those who receive it. But for the one who bestows it, it cost everything. It cost him his dignity. It cost him his power. It cost him his life. It cost him suffering the, full, the fullness of the horror of hell for us. That's how much he loves us. That's how rich his grace toward us is. It was to reveal that astounding love that Jesus came. Luke emphasized that in what we read earlier. First, there's this paralyzed man. Now, Jesus could have simply healed the man's body. That's what the friends wanted. That's what the crowd expected. But Jesus looked on this man and he recognized that wasn't what was really wrong with him. Sure, he couldn't work. He couldn't walk. He was a drain on his family. That wasn't the problem. Because this life is just an instant. His real problem is that he was... Cut off from God, paralyzed in his sin. And so he says to him, Man, your sins are forgiven. And these Bible scholars, they're watching, they're listening, and they're shaking their heads. How dare he? He's blaspheming. Either he doesn't recognize the weight of sin, or this guy's crazy enough to think he's actually God. They don't say it, but they think it. Maybe they mutter a little bit. And so Jesus challenges them. What's easier to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? You kids know the answer to that, right? If you say your sins are forgiven, there's no outward sign of that, is there? You say get up and walk and he doesn't walk, well, you're going to look kind of foolish. So Jesus says that you might believe that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I tell you, rise up, take up your mat and go. And he does. Because not only is he the one who came to forgive our sins, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is God himself come in flesh. And the man gets up, takes up his mat and goes home. That's why Jesus came. Not just to heal our physical infirmities. Certainly in the new heavens and the new earth, they will all be healed. 
I have a feeling we'll have the scars to remind us of God's grace, but I don't know that for sure. But I do know this. Not only will we be physically whole, we will be spiritually whole because that's the heart of why He came. It's to forgive us and to reconcile us to God. And then, having gone from there, He comes to Levi, a tax collector. We don't get how scorned and hated tax collectors were. We think we know because we hate taxes. We think we know because we know how utterly wasteful, well, (laughs) we think we know how utterly wasteful Washington is. If we really knew, we'd... It would be bad. But you got to understand these tax collectors were worse. See, they didn't just collect what Congress told them to collect. Rome told them, this is what I expect from this region that is yours. Whatever you get beyond that's on you. Literally, it's on you, it's yours. So if Rome said, using our equivalencies... Every family needs to pay $100 a year, and you manage to get $300. Guess what? $200's yours. Now that's bad. And these guys were good at exacting an incredible amount of money out of the people. But what's worse is that these were Jews serving the Roman government, which was seen as interlopers, God's enemies ruling over his people. They heard the same text we heard this morning, Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And here's these guys. They're serving the ones who hate the Lord. They're serving Caesar who thinks he's God. They hated, they abhorred, they despised these tax collectors. But Jesus sees Levi. He knows Levi because his father had entrusted him to him. He says, Levi, come. And Levi did. We don't know the backstory. We don't know what teachings of Jesus he had heard. We don't know what Jesus told him when he came. But we know that Levi was wholeheartedly and absolutely committed to Christ. So much so that he throws a feast both to celebrate what Jesus is doing for him and to tell his friends, his co-workers, his colleagues, you got to meet this guy. I was despised by the country, but I was also despised by God. I was despised in my own heart, and He has restored me. You've got to meet Him. Pharisees can't see it. All they can see is, how could you eat with the likes of them? Do you know how shameful that is? Do you know what that says about you? To hang out with people like that? But what's Jesus say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What the Pharisees wanted was, you know what? I know you're sick. Get yourself well. Get yourself healthy and then go to the doctor. Jesus says, no, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And those tax collectors, say what you wanted about them, they knew they were sinners. They knew they were lost. They knew they were cut off from God and from everything good. What Jesus was offering them was a treasure that they never thought they could receive. The Pharisees didn't get it. They thought they were enough on their own. We must not be them. There's a reason our forefathers saw wisdom in putting Article 1 first and then Article 2. 
If we don't get that every last one of us deserves God's wrath, deserves eternal hell, deserves to be cut off from God and from everything good for all eternity. If you don't get that, you can't get Christ. You're still in, in Pharisee land. You're still thinking that you are okay. And you're not. Our gracious God provides what sinful man could never, ever, ever merit. He provides life. He provides salvation. He provides forgiveness. He provides Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your goodness and your grace greater than we can wrap our heads around. You loved us more than we loved ourselves by a long shot. When we would have given up on ourselves, you sent your Son to die and to rise again that we might have life. Teach us, Lord, to marvel and to stand in awe of the love and the mercy that you show toward your people. And teach us, Lord, to give you the glory and the praise that you deserve for this gift that is beyond our ability even to fathom. And Father, we pray that you would lead us to devote our very lives to showing you our thanks. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And beloved, in response, let's stand and sing hymn number 260 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Number 260, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall. And we'll sing all the stanzas.
Our offering this evening is for the Biblical Counseling Center. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have raised up counselors who are able and willing to talk us through our struggles in a manner that turns us to you and to your word. We pray that you would bless their labors and that you would keep them firmly planted in your truth and in your, your spirit so that those whom they seek to help might find their hope and their rest in you. Bless our offering as a token of our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song is Psalm 103, Selection D, from our Trinity Psalter Hymnal. This is a a song that's found also in our Blue Psalter Hymnal, but um, since our doxology is out of the Trinity, we'll just sing this version. 103, Selection D.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his, counsel, his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.